From Spa Damer and Tenney, it's White Coat Wellness, a show for doctors who are ready to improve their financial wellness. We know you work hard to help your patients, but you can't be at your best if you don't have your own finances in order. In White Coat Wellness, we highlight real-life stories from physicians and dentists to educate, encourage, and inspire you to personal, professional, and financial wellness. Now, from Spa Damer and Tenney, please welcome your host, Shane Tenney. Today's episode brought to you by SunTrust Mortgage and our good friend Jason Watkins, specializing in flexible mortgage financing options specifically for doctors and dentists. To have a conversation with Jason, you can Google search Jason Watkins SunTrust Mortgage or call him directly, 704-654-6058. All right. Today, we're back for part two in the conversation with Dr. Carmen Teague. And today, we're picking up the topic of physician burnout and trends in medicine. If you missed part one, you'll definitely want to go back and listen to that episode about juggling marriage, kids, adoption, and sanity, uh, just mixed in for fun. Or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. That's right. Um, Dr. Carmen Teague is not only the director of internal medicine for Atrium Healthcare, but is First and foremost, a wife to her high school sweetheart, a dedicated mother to her four kids, a board member of Blessed Back Worldwide, and has published a book titled Motherhood, Medicine, and Mayhem, Mayhem, and uh, joins us today to share a little bit of her story on finding sanity in the stress. Carmen, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've got some thoughtful perspective around trends in medicine and physician burnout, and, uh, and so I wanted to kind of dive into that and understand a little bit of your background clinically and, and maybe just start by um, your work at Atrium Healthcare in Charlotte and how you have found yourself in the role of internal medicine director. <laughs> Wow. Again, a tortuous path. Um, I talked about in part one how my life has not turned out how I planned it. And being in medicine was not my plan. And certainly being in hospital and medical administration, never in a million years my plan. But again, life doesn't always turn out how you plan it. And sometimes you find yourself in roles that um, open in front of you and you walk in and you think, huh, maybe this is a better fit than I thought. So I came to Charlotte for residency and trained here. Um, you come out of residency green as all get out and you're trying to figure out just how to be a doctor. And I joined a wonderful group here in town called Mecklenburg Medical Group. And in the first two years, so I finished residency in 04, so 04 through 06, you just try to figure out how to be a doc, what's going on. But by 2006, there was a lot of chatter on the horizon about the Affordable Care Act and health care changing. And I pulled my head out of the sand and thought, wow, my job's going to look very different over the next couple of years. I do not want to be sitting back and having this done to me, but I'd really like to be at the table being part of the conversation. And so over the next couple of years, I volunteered to be the local leader of my practice. And that morphed into being a regional leader for groups of practices. And then in 2009, the opportunity arose to be the director of internal medicine for what was then Carolina's Physicians Network, which is now morphed into Atrium. And At that point, I had two 10-month-old little boys and, uh, let's see, four-year-old, six-year-old. Life was a little chaotic at home, and this opportunity arose, and I brought the job description home, and I remember laying it on the table thinking, wow, I really just have a passion for this. I see where medicine's headed. I really want to make the practice of medicine better. 
But I convinced myself that I had too much on my plate. I really couldn't do it. My husband, who saw the job description lying on the kitchen table, came and found me. He's like, what are you waiting on? He's like, this was written for you. This is your passion. This is what you want to do. He said, apply for the job. And so I did. And I have not looked back. It's been an incredible blessing. And the reason I wanted to be part of leading other physicians is that I have such a passion for the practice of medicine and for what I think people go into medicine for. Doctors don't go into medicine to be experts in the electronic medical record or to be data entry clerks. We go into medicine to take care of people and because we have a passion of caring for people and learning about the human body and doing the right thing. And I saw that all these changes encroaching on healthcare had the potential to really encroach on that sacred nature of medicine. And I thought, hmm, if I can stand in the gap and be part of the conversation and do something to make it better and represent my physician colleagues, I want to be there. That's the spot I want to be in. And, And it has been a fun, tortuous path, but it has been such a privilege to be part of of leading healthcare change and to continue to make the practice of medicine better for providers because that makes medicine better for patients. A happy doctor is a good doctor. Medicine has changed so much over the last decade. Um, And even in your book, again, Motherhood, Medicine, and Mayhem, you wrote, we have our priorities all screwed up when it comes to medicine in the U.S. We confuse quantity with quality. I think mm-hmm. I read somewhere. Um, what what was going through your mind when you wrote those words? So even in residency, I recognized that life is sacred. The good Lord is the giver and taker of life. And sometimes we expend extraordinary measures to prolong life when it's probably not the right thing to do in the sense that we can't prolong life, but we can keep somebody on life support a really long time. And that's a really awkward place to be. It's also also not necessarily the right thing to do just because we can do it. I've jokingly said just because we can do something in medicine doesn't necessarily mean we have the ethics to know how to use that knowledge. And I've been very passionate about that through the years. If you look at the way healthcare money is spent, sometimes we expend lots and lots of money on curing things that we should have prevented in the first place. And we have so much of our priority on managing chronic illness and not as much on prevention. And that's where my passion is. For example, diabetes and COPD are diseases that are very much mediated by diet and lifestyle choices, smoking, eating too much. And I think we need to focus and put our priorities and our money, not necessarily on new drugs to treat those illnesses, but on ways that we teach people how to eat healthy and how to avoid things that ultimately lead to those illnesses. So that's my, I think that's what I was referring to. You know, we need to look at the the quality of life and we we try to prolong quantity of life at the end where we have diseases that are debilitating and people are, are miserable. Life and living are two different things. The Affordable Care Act you mentioned a little bit ago introduced a a whole lot of change um, at an exponential rate. Yeah, at an exponential (laughs) rate. And not the, not the least of which is something that I hear uh, a fair amount about often begrudgingly, and that is just all the quality metrics that are in place now. Do you think kind of the adoption of quality metrics by hospital systems and insurance companies are are helping patient outcomes or or ultimately hurting patient outcomes? It's a great question. I don't think a doctor goes into a medicine and wants to have bad outcomes. You know, we, in our system, we do measure quality outcomes and, and we have phenomenal quality outcomes around diabetes. We're top decile around prevention metrics. We're top quartile. 
but we were there when we started measuring it. So just measuring it just does not change behavior. What we need to do is put infrastructure in place as medical systems so that we it's easy to do the right thing every time and get patients the right care every time they walk in our doors. It's not when they come see us that's the problem. It's when they don't. And again, it gets back to prevention and how do we help people stay healthy. I don't think measuring quality metrics is a bad thing, but I also don't think because you have a metric that says the diabetics under our care get top decile care doesn't mean we have the healthiest population in our area. It just means the ones that we're seeing. So I agree that we need to measure and I agree that we need to work toward bettering those measures, but I don't think quality metrics in and of themselves equate to quality care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you could change something that's going on in medicine right now, what would it be? I think we are really headed in the right direction with trying to manage populations of care and trying getting back to this prevention, et cetera. I think the hard part now is the way medicine is paid for. I think the most difficult thing in medicine that I would change if I was queen for a day is that we have third-party pairs between healthcare systems, i.e. providers and their patients, determining what is paid for, what's not paid for, what should be paid for. If looking back on history before my time, I think the biggest struggle or biggest bump we had in healthcare in our country happened at the end of World War II when we made healthcare benefits something that was provided by employers. And if I could change one thing, I would take employers, insurance companies, out of the position of being between a patient and healthcare, I think they have a place, but I think individuals would do a better job of managing cost and managing their care if they had the responsibility of the cost. We have an entire generation of Americans who have no idea what it costs to provide health care. They equate the $20 copay, that's how much it costs for the doctor to see me, not understanding all of the thousands and thousands of dollars it costs just to turn the lights on, to run the lab equipment, to do the simple things that all have to happen to take good care of a patient. And that's just on the outpatient side. So if I could change anything, it would be shift the way medicine has been paid for and how individuals understand their responsibility in caring for themselves. I'm Will Coster, and this episode's White Coat Wisdom is sponsored by SunTrust Mortgage. We often get questions about physician mortgages. What are the pros and the cons of these types of programs? While I can't say if they're right for you, I wanted to use my time on this episode to discuss some of the details of physician mortgage programs. In general, these programs are designed to be flexible, to meet the unique needs of physicians. The mortgage companies know that physicians typically carry higher than average debt loads because of their student loans. They also know that income during training hinders their ability to save for a down payment. SunTrust's Physician Loan Program is available for physicians during residency and fellowship, and for practicing physicians and dentists who have completed their training within the last 15 years. MDs, DOs, DDSs, and more are eligible for this program. Specifications of these loans will vary from lender to lender, but SunTrust Program, which is one of the best our team has come across, offers 100% financing for homes up to $750,000 with no PMI, or private mortgage insurance. Now, there are credit score requirements for this program, but in our experience, SunTrust has been able to be flexible and find solutions for physicians with certain circumstances. Bottom line and the takeaway for all of this, if you're a physician in the market for a new home, you'll want to consider if a physician loan is right for you. 
If you'd like some more information, we'll put some links in the show notes. And as always, drop us a line if you'd like to talk to a professional about your specific situation. I'm Will Coster, and thanks again to SunTrust for sponsoring this episode's White Coat Wisdom. You are pretty passionate about the now ubiquitous topic called physician burnout or moral injury, I think I've seen in some (laughs) articles. And I think you've had some pretty personal experiences around this topic. I have. Can you talk Um, about those? I can. I came from a counseling background. I have a degree in Christian counseling. I am passionate about anxiety, depression, treating it. And every patient that walks in our door gets a depression screen. We do that as a system. But I was doing that for years before because I don't want to miss something in taking care of patients. I think we are mind, body, spirit, soul. And you can't care for the health of somebody unless you look at all of those components. But a couple of years ago, one of my um, medical partners with whom I had practiced for 18 years took his own life unexpectedly. And I was blindsided and devastated. This was a provider who was an icon in the community who had been practice over 30 years. I had ridden up and down the elevator with my partner for years and years and years and never once even had the inkling that he was struggling with depression. When I got the call that he had taken his life, I was blindsided and I was guilt-ridden because I thought, what what did I miss? What could I have done? And many of us in medicine probably have a Messiah complex. We want to fix everybody. But at that point, I recognized that I was not asking those questions as often as I should be with my own colleagues that, are you okay? Are you struggling with depression? Are you angry? Are you anxious? Because depression manifests itself very differently in men and women and in um, certain professionals and other walks of life or other ways that we don't necessarily look for in medicine, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to allow my desire to respect privacy or not ask questions, get in the way of asking the real substance of what's going on with you. So it did hit me like a ton of bricks. It also reminded me of why I have to step back and remind myself why I go into medicine. Medicine is not an easy calling, and I do believe it as a calling. There are stresses every day. My husband jokingly says he just moves other people's money around, and I move people's lives around. And I'm like, that's kind of a scary simplification, but it is true. If I make a mistake, it can be life altering. And that weight and that stress can really get to you. For me, I have found that engaging in international travel and doing medical mission work is a way to unplug and to step back and remind me of why I do medicine in the first place. International medicine is just that, you and a patient. It is not coding and billing and compliance and all those things that we have to do here with American medicine. Not that I think those things are bad. They just can taint your passion for medicine. So over the last um, five to six years, I've become very involved with an organization called Bless Back Worldwide. And their focus in one aspect is medical care. They also focus on development as well as education. But I have been intimately involved in the medical side. And I have the opportunity to travel to Haiti a couple times a year and just be reminded of why I went into med school and why I chose to be involved in this profession. And I encourage all of my physicians with whom I work to find their passion and to step back and take time to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you think with a greater awareness and publicity around the stress that is taking place in medicine, often as as a byproduct, I think, of some of the regulatory changes and those sorts of things, not 
not just the patient population, mm-hmm. it's, it's the external factors. Are you seeing a, a greater willingness to talk about the issue or you mentioned, you know, a willingness on, on your part to ask colleagues, you know, are Sometimes you feeling you, you depressed? Are, are people willing to be self-aware or say yes? Or I think, I think that's generational as well. Yeah. I think that, you know, I am late forties, very late forties, came to medicine a little later, but I do think there is a generational difference to how you look at the stress of medicine. Many of us trained where there were no limits on how many hours you could work and you just plowed through and it was just what you did and you sucked it up and you didn't say anything. And I I think that generation may be harder to tap into, are you feeling depressed? Are you anxious? Or are you not? Whereas I think some of my younger colleagues talked more about this in training. They had more education on what does burnout look like? How do you manage stress? And I think they do a better job and are more willing to talk about that. I also think that my younger colleagues do a better job of, of setting boundaries and of saying, I don't want to work full time because I know I can't manage the stress where I have folks close to retirement that are working 90 hours a week because they've always worked 90 hours a week and they feel that that's normal. And I'm I'm trying to navigate all the things that have to be done in medicine and helping different generations manage stress and ask those questions. What I do to relax is different than one of my colleagues who may be in their late 60s would do to relax. And that would be different than what one of my colleagues in their early 30s would want to do. You have to recognize, you got to understand What's your happy place? And figure out how to get yeah, there. Yeah. And with with medicine being such a, a huge industry, and and over the or through the consolidation of the last decade or two, the the healthcare systems are large. Mm-hmm. What is, what are your words to someone who's listening and just feels like a tiny cog in a huge machine? You know, the system. No one doc. No one provider can change this, can stop the craziness, can stop the insanity. I am that squeaky wheel yelling into the darkness. I believe that one person can make a difference. And I tell all of my providers with whom I work, what you do in that 10 by 10 exam room is sacred. And that relationship that you have with that patient, you are making a difference one patient at a time. And although you may not agree with everything changing in medicine, my job and our job as a healthcare administrator as a healthcare system is to put the pieces in place and to standardize the big stuff so you can individualize the little stuff and so that you can be the doctor that that patient needs at that moment while the other stuff happens in the background behind you. I don't think being part of a big system is a bad thing because I'll be honest with you, I don't want to deal with coding and billing. I don't want to hire and fire my staff. I want to be the physician that my patients need every single day when they walk into a room. And I am more than willing to lean on my administrative colleagues to manage those things that I don't have the skill set to manage. I don't have an MBA. If you can get one by on-the-job training, maybe I could get one like that. But that is not how I've been gifted. But my job at the administrative table is to bring the clinical perspective and to bring the perspective of what it's like to take care of a patient, of what it feels like when an administrative decision interferes with that sacred patient interaction. That is where I think you can make a difference. And I would tell every physician, do what you do best. Be the physician, be the doctor, be the nurse practitioner, be the physician's assistant, be the dentist, take care of that patient and rely on people that have a different skill set to take care of the other stuff that you shouldn't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. 
Good words. Good words. Carmen, I'm going to will adjourn here. On a high note, I thank you so much for giving your time to come and talk to us and uh, share your story. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Will Coster, bringing you White Coat Achievements, our segment that highlights noteworthy achievements by your friends and colleagues. It's no secret that there has been a crisis unfolding within the healthcare industry that has deeply affected clinicians across our country. On this episode, we are highlighting a psychiatrist who has dedicated her career to finding innovative ways to make medicine better for both patients and physicians. Dr. Wendy Dean is now the president and co-founder at Moral Injury of Healthcare, a nonprofit organization that claims they are dedicated to putting the care back in healthcare. Dr. Dean has a background in psychiatry and military medicine, and she was noticing a similarity in what she was seeing in PTSD patients and what her healthcare colleagues were experiencing. In 2018, Dr. Dean co-published an article confronting the burnout conversation head-on, declaring that physicians aren't, quote, burnt out, they're suffering from moral injury. The article sparked international conversation among healthcare professionals and others about the moral foundations of medicine and has begun to change the language around clinician distress. One of their recent articles argues that the burnout epidemic continues because the moral injury at the root of the problem remains unaddressed. Burnout may be the symptom, but in many cases, moral injury is the cause. Working with physicians every day, we are well aware of this issue facing the healthcare industry. We value Dr. Dean's passion and her contribution to help end moral injury. We think she's well-deserving of a shout-out in our White Coat Achievements segment. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Wendy Dean and the moral injury of healthcare, we'll put some links in the show notes. As always, if you know someone who is wearing a white coat and is achieving something noteworthy, Please drop us a line. We'd love to hear about it. We might even highlight them in a future episode. But again, this episode's White Coat Achievement goes to Dr. Wendy Dean. Carmen Teague, uh, doctor, leader, mom, volunteer, navigator of life's craziness. And again, her book, you can find it on Amazon. It's Motherhood, Medicine, and Mayhem. Uh, you can also find her through her website, uh, carmen-teague.com. You can find it in the show notes. Also, I mentioned last time we're hoping to do a series on marriage and money in the coming months. So if you and your spouse would be willing to tell us how you've navigated money issues in your marriage, I uh, would love to know about it. You can drop me an email at shane at whitecoatwell.com. And again, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Give us a review on iTunes, Google Play. You can also check out our private closed Facebook group called White Coat Wellness specifically to help you connect with others in medicine or dentistry who want to share life together. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you here next time. This episode of White Coat Wellness is over, but you're not alone on your journey toward financial wellness. Spa Dame Rinteni has been helping physicians and dentists with their financial planning for over 60 years, and we'd love to answer any questions that would be of help to you. Visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Once again, that's sdtplanning.com. And we'll see you on the next episode of White Coat Wellness.